Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician and child and adult holistic psychiatrist. In today's episode, I'll be discussing copper overload, a common nutrient imbalance that impacts specific neurotransmitters or brain chemicals and can contribute to brain-related symptoms. Copper overload is impacting many individuals who have ADHD, high anxiety, depression, explosive anger, as well as many with autism and dementia. Women on birth control or who have copper IUDs and who have difficulty regulating copper for reasons I'll discuss are unknowingly being affected. 90% of women with postpartum depression, anxiety, or psychosis have been found to have relatively high copper levels. This imbalance is not difficult to identify, nor is it difficult to treat, and treatment can be life-changing or even life-saving. This is one of the few nutrient imbalances that the Walsh Research Institute and Dr. William Walsh identified when looking at labs of thousands, 30,000, in fact, individuals with brain-related symptoms. Others that I've talked about on previous podcasts were pyrrole disorder and undermethylation. I've not yet talked about overmethylation. Copper is naturally occurring in our body, so it is a trace metal, not a toxic metal. Toxic or heavy metals would include things like lead, mercury, arsenic, Copper is important for the synthesis of neurotransmitters. It's important for respiration, immune function, energy metabolism, and growth. We obtain copper in part from our food. It's also in our water, and we can have specific exposures. For example, well water is higher in copper. Copper pipes will convey higher copper exposure There's certain algae treatments that are high in copper from vitamins that include copper. Some multivitamins will have copper in them. Some people work with copper directly through jewelry making, for example. But normally, blood copper levels are kept within a normal range, and I should say a narrow range, And this occurs by way of proteins such as metallothionines, which I'll talk about, and ceruloplasmin, as well as other proteins. How can we become overloaded with copper? First, we can acquire a genetic inability to regulate copper well. And so this could be a polymorphism on one of the genes that's impacting this, most specifically metallothionines. These are proteins that are, have a strong antioxidant effect in the body. You may have heard of glutathione as a strong antioxidant. Well, metallothionine is often not heard of, but is a, is a powerful protein for a number of reasons, but one of which is that it regulates trace metals such as copper and zinc. So if someone is born with a weakness on the gene for that protein, they would be more susceptible. And then in the presence of exposure, they could have rising copper levels. 
Also, zinc is another trace metal. It keeps copper down, and it is necessary for the expression of those metallothionine proteins. So if someone is low in zinc, that could further raise their vulnerability. Also, if someone is dealing with a great deal of what we call oxidative stress, this is where our body's antioxidant system has been overwhelmed. And by free radicals, chemical exposures, heavy metal exposures, mold toxins, uh, certain inflammatory triggers, and even trauma could exacerbate oxidative stress. So if someone is dealing with oxidative stress, the metallothionines and zinc too, the functioning of these can be depleted, and then someone could become more could develop higher copper levels. How does copper impact the brain? So there is an enzyme called dopamine hydroxylase, which basically is what converts dopamine to norepinephrine. And for that enzyme to do that, it requires a co- cofactors, and one of the cofactors is copper. Another is vitamin C. Copper lowers, therefore, dopamine levels and increases norepinephrine levels. So if you have high copper, more of that dopamine is going to be turned into norepinephrine. And low dopamine could convey depressed mood, lack of motivation. Dopamine is a feel-good type of neurotransmitter. It also is something that is, that is at play when it comes to ADHD. High norepinephrine levels can, can lead to a high adrenaline-like state. So high anxiety, perhaps even panic, sleep problems. For some people, in the combination of other imbalances, could also become paranoid and even develop severe psychosis. There are a number of symptoms that relate to copper overload. People don't have to have all of these symptoms. But as I mentioned, depression could be one, high anxiety, low energy, sleep disorders, attention problems, impulsivity, hyperactivity. We do see emotional meltdowns, temper, even rage for some people that is associated with the high copper levels, and these symptoms tend to improve by bringing the copper into the more optimal range. Chronic fatigue can also be a symptom, and some people will report having a a feeling of being tired but wired, so feeling anxious and wound up, but also um, physically tired and unable to do what they need to do. Because of the relationship with estrogen, postpartum depression is uh, there's a strong association with with copper. As I mentioned, ninety percent of women with postpartum depression, anxiety, or psychosis have elevated copper. Copper is needed to vascularize or create blood vessels around the placenta. So during pregnancy, as estrogen levels are going up, copper levels will go up to vascularize the placenta and 
after the pregnancy, within 24 hours, that copper level will come back down. However, if someone doesn't have the ability to easily regulate copper, that may not happen, and that could convey high copper symptoms after pregnancy. But normally in pregnancy, again, copper levels will, we expect them to go up, but we also expect them to come down fairly quickly after, uh, after childbirth. Physical symptoms similarly will be related to this estrogen relationship, although men can have copper-related symptoms, as can young boys. Hormonal symptoms could be an intolerance to estrogen. Someone whose symptoms get worse when they're on birth control or have hormone replacement or a young girl who at the onset of puberty starts to have new symptoms that she hasn't had before. There can be abnormal menstrual periods. There can be um, problems with fibroids even, heavy menstrual bleeding. There can be a sensitivity to rough fabrics. There can be ringing in the ears. There can be a sensitivity to shellfish and chocolate, which happen to be particularly high in copper. There can also be a sensitivity to food dyes and to uh, specific nutrient supplements. In children, we may see hyperactivity or academic underachievement. We may also see explosive temper tantrums. And when we see a child with and an adult with explosive anger, we will think of copper and or pyrroles. They can occur together, but either one of those uh, biochemical imbalances could contribute to those symptoms, and we find both of these, and especially in in young children, uh, they tend to respond very well and quickly to treatment. Associated diagnoses... It's worth mentioning that when the Walsh Research Institute looked at individuals with depression and they looked at how many people had, for example, undermethylation, elevated pyrroles, overmethylation, 17% of individuals who had been diagnosed with, uh, given a depression diagnosis, were found to have elevated copper. And of those 17%, 96% of this biotype were female. And most of these women and girls were having the first episode of depression during a hormonal event, again, puberty, childbirth, or menopause. Bipolar disorder, ADHD, intermittent explosive disorder have are associated diagnoses, autism, dementia. As far as physical associated diagnoses, I mentioned fibroids, but autoimmune conditions. And in some cases, I've had colleagues report who specialize in treating cancer patients from a functional medicine perspective that copper is very common, high copper is very common in in those individuals. To diagnose copper overload, 
We use a blood test to check serum copper, and we also check ceruloplasmin, which is a protein that binds copper, and with those two numbers, we calculate a percent free copper, the amount of copper basically that is free and unbound to that protein. And it's the free copper that's contributing to the brain-related symptoms. The other number that we calculate is a free copper index, which accounts for how much copper someone has and how much is free. The ranges that we use for optimal levels, and this, when I say we, I'm referring to those of us who've trained with the Walsh Research Institute, are different than the ranges that you'll see on a typical uh, lab result. For example, a lab may say optimal copper is between 70 and 155, and we would say that once it's getting above 110, that is associated with a higher incidence of brain-related symptoms. For individuals who are wanting to check their own copper levels, and with this I'm always checking zinc levels because we use zinc to bring copper down. And it helps to know where someone's zinc level is also to calculate a copper-zinc ratio. If it's getting high, independent of what someone's copper is, if there's a high copper-zinc ratio, and those numbers are not very close to one another, then that would suggest what we would call a metal metabolism disorder. So even without high copper, if there's a big discrepancy between the plasma zinc and the serum copper, that would, again, raise someone's vulnerability to brain-related symptoms, especially ADHD. We also obviously look at someone's symptoms. Treatment of copper overload involves limiting exposure and specific nutrient protocols, as well as lowering oxidative stress, and in some cases, using additional interventions to help the functioning of this metallothionine protein or antioxidant. Limiting exposure could be water filtration. Most water filters do not filter out copper because, again, it's not a heavy metal. We would either use filtered or bottled water, ideally bottled water not being in plastic. In some cases, people prefer sparkling water in glass bottles. Certain foods are high in copper, as I mentioned, chocolate and shellfish. Carob is another So if someone has particularly high copper, we would recommend that they avoid these. Or if they're eating a lot of foods that have relatively high amounts, such as avocado, salmon, organ meat, nuts, and beans. Copper, again, is in certain supplements, so we would want to make sure someone's not getting any additional copper coming in. If they work with jewelry or spend a lot of time in swimming pools, they may need to limit their exposures there as well. If someone has a copper IUD, we would strongly recommend that that be removed. And if if a woman has any added estrogen, either through birth control or hormone replacement, we would advise against this, which can be tricky if if, for example, the 
the birth control is especially important in preventing pregnancy, we can try to bring down copper in the presence of birth control and sometimes can to a point. But for those who have especially high copper, it can be very challenging to bring it into the optimal range as long as there's added estrogen. The nutrient protocols that we use include zinc. Molybdenum is another supplement that can bring down copper, and that's often part of the protocol that I will use. Manganese can be helpful, though there's a number of cases in which we can't use manganese. So more often than not, I'm using zinc and molybdenum. And with that, um, tracking someone's zinc level to make sure that it's in the optimal range. And also if their copper isn't terribly high, we wouldn't want to bring it down too low. So we do monitor blood work when we're treating copper overload and really any of the nutrient imbalances we do um, monitor the with labs. Other supportive nutrients can be vitamin B6 and also the active form, which is P5P, vitamin C, vitamin E, and selenium. Sometimes glutathione can be helpful in this regard also. Copper overload is treated carefully to avoid the sudden release of excessive copper or the sudden mobilization of excessive copper, which could exacerbate someone's symptoms, whatever their copper-related symptoms are. So we build up the nutrient protocol, or at least I build up the nutrient protocol over a three- to four-week period. It can take 60 to 90 days, depending on how high the copper is, for it to come down into the optimal range. And it can also depend on how how easily someone's tolerating the treatment. For those who are not benefiting from the nutrient protocol with the zinc and the molybdenum specifically targeting the, the copper, which usually does do the job, but when it doesn't, we have the option of using metallothionine promotion therapy. And this is a therapy that was designed by Dr. William Walsh, again, who is the pioneer in this area of nutrient imbalances. He has designed this product which has glutathione and amino acids. We don't use this when someone's zinc have not, has not been optimized because this product, which will help metallothionine work better, will inevitably use up some zinc. So if someone doesn't have optimal levels of zinc, then they can become depleted and start to have problems with a zinc deficiency, which we obviously don't want. Because metallothionine not only helps with copper-zinc imbalances, this particular metallothionine promotion could, can be helpful in other ways as well. Metallothionines are important for preventing metal toxicity, so this can be a treatment for metal toxicity. It is something that we use in autism and in dementia. 
it is also something that potentially could be a help helpful in autoimmunity and in various gastrointestinal issues because metallothionine is important at the gut blood barrier and it's also important at the blood brain barrier because that's where these proteins are and it can be helpful in preventing yeast or candida overgrowth and helping with immune regulation contraindications to treatment for copper could be a woman who is pregnant we would not use these nutrient protocols in pregnancy uh, primarily because we don't want to interfere with that process of vascularization but also because these higher dose nutrient and protocol nutrient protocols have not been studied in pregnancy and we don't know the impact on on the fetus we also don't use these protocols when at the doses that we would normally use when a woman is breastfeeding because some of the nutrients for example zinc will go into breast milk we also would not want to overtreat for if someone has low copper and this is where the monitoring is important if we overtreated someone and they developed low copper symptoms confusion around the copper issue can relate to wilson's disease now wilson's disease is a copper metabolism issue but what we would expect to see with wilson's disease on blood work would be a low serum copper and low ceruloplasmin so when we do our blood work and see that someone has high that is when we would call it copper overload in wilson's disease the copper is being sequestered in the liver and in some cases the brain and it's the sequestration of the copper that is resulting in the lower serum copper levels ways that we can screen for that if we find someone happens to have very low levels that and again they haven't been in any kind of treatment for copper we would do a 24 hour urine copper and then we would also check for what are called kaiser fleischer rings this is a test that's done by uh, an op- it's called the slit lamp exam and an ophthalmologist can do this test the only way to definitively rule out wilson's disease would be to have a liver biopsy and so there are times when this has to be evaluated or considered by a liver specialist but more often and again what i'm talking about is copper overload and wilson's disease is fairly rare and not something that i have yet seen in my in my work so who could this information be helpful for again someone who has had postpartum depression someone with hormonally related brain symptoms someone who has had worsening of symptoms with birth control hormone replacement or a copper iud and the symptoms could creep up on someone so they may not associate it with the hormone replacement or with the birth control or with the copper iud although with the copper iud it could be quite dramatic it could also be helpful for uh, adults or children who have uh, significant problems managing their temper and even again for those with ADHD 
Before I sign off, I would just want to point out that a number of the topics that I'm talking about separately can relate to one another. So again, someone could have elevated pyrroles, and that could cause low zinc, and that could cause high copper. Mold toxicity or metal toxicity could overwhelm the metallothionines that regulate copper, and then someone could develop high copper. These topics are, don't exist in isolation. It's just the easiest way to educate and provide information. But as I move forward, I will be, for example, taking the topic of depression or the topic of panic or the topic of ADHD and then be commenting on the underlying root causes that can be contributing and then these earlier podcasts can serve as resources for people that want to take the deeper dive into any of those topics. I hope this was helpful. And if you want to learn more about this and other topics, my website is CourtneySnyderMD.com. If you want to learn more about the work of Dr. Walsh and the Walsh Research Institute, they have a nice website. I believe it's WalshInstitute.org. And Nutrient Power by Dr. Walsh goes into the different imbalances and how they relate to different brain-related conditions. So thanks again. I'll look forward to connecting with you in the next podcast. Take care. Bye-bye.